Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network in British Studies. I'm Tyler Yank, a co-host of the channel, and today we're talking to Dr. John Broich, Associate Professor at Case Western Reserve University, about his new book, Squadron, Ending the African Slave Trade, um, which was published in 2017 by Overlook Duckworth Press. John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Tyler. Um, John, I wonder if you could begin by saying a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I'm from the Prairies of Minnesota, about as far away from the sea as possible. Um, so I had to do a lot of learning about nautical matters, for sure. Um, like a good Minnesotan, I went to St. Olaf College, where they study the Bible and Kierkegaard, or the Kierkegaard in the Bible. I got my, my master's degree with some wonderful teachers at the University of Maine, uh, and then received my PhD in history from Stanford um, with some wonderful scholars and people like Peter Stansky and Richard White. And uh, ended up, landed in uh, Cleveland at Case Western Reserve University. Great, thank you. Um, so how did you come to write about the Indian Ocean? Yeah, it, it all started because as a grad student back at Stanford, my hand randomly fell on a copy of uh, George Sullivan's, that's one of my squadron's captains, George Sullivan's 1870s memoir of his experience on the East African coast. Uh, I wasn't looking for it. I was probably working on my dissertation, uh, but I was amazed by his story and started this long project, I guess, over... 10-year project of reading every possible source on this story. And I would sort of sneak in work on this book um, when I was in the UK working on my academic projects. And I really couldn't sit down to write the book until after I got tenure on the basis of my more formal scholarship. And once I got that tenure letter, I could turn my attention to, to this and doing the sort of writing uh, that I hope reaches people and really teaches people some insights into the history of the Royal Navy, the British Empire, um, really the history of race in a sort of readable, appealing, uh, plot-forward way. Yeah, and you did choose this really compelling narrative style, um, which is obviously deeply researched, though you do sort of tuck your sort of vast archival work in the back. Um, so why did you choose this style how did this process come together? Yeah, I love I love it. I, I love how I hope nobody turns to the end notes. I mean, there are, there are pages and pages. My my publisher probably I actually had to convince my publisher to put them in there. Um, but <laughs> what I really hope is that no one uh, no one appreciates that there's this huge uh, body of end notes at the back uh, because it reads um, so as you say narratively. Um, and yeah, it, it was, it was, uh, I was very conscious of it and I was trying to write in a way 
that invited people into this story, this drama. You know, the stakes couldn't be higher. There, there are people's uh, lives at stake, the lives of these East African people. And uh, it's the question of um, enslaved or not enslaved or life or death. Um, and so my, my hope is that draws people in, but they're going to learn so much, I think, and I hope, they're going to learn so much about the British Empire in this time and this chapter in the history of race itself and about you know questions of capitalism and free trade in the Indian Ocean, the ways in which so many countries and so many people were complicit in um, this slavery system because they used the products that these, these enslaved people brought out of the jungle or these enslaved people processed like ivory and and dates and and so on and so forth so yeah it was a it was a very conscious choice to turn away from a project uh in which uh one only speaks to other scholars and instead instead turns to the public now um as you can appreciate tyler you're you're a scholar in training we need to (laughs) um scholars need to talk to one another we need to make each other better and smarter and ask each other tough questions and tell one another about what we discovered in the archives and how we're going about our business so that we all get better. Um, but, but my hope is that sometimes we will turn outward to the people outside the, the cloister and be very conscious about, about, sharing with them in a way that they can appreciate and read. Yeah. And I think, I mean, so if we start from the beginning, your your book traces the careers of four particular men. And I feel like you chose these particular figures based on their, um, maybe their readability or public interest at large. So could you say a little bit about who these four men were and how you selected them? Yes, exactly. So um, the, 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 there are four. One is the Commodore of this squadron, that is the officer overseeing this little flotilla of Royal Navy ships based on what was historically called Bombay. And uh, his, uh, uh, his name was Leopold Heath, and he personally chose to fight this slave trade that was going from the east coast of Africa um, in the middle of the 1800s, he chose to fight it in a way that no such Commodore had, had ever chosen before, uh, with greater intensity, with, uh, uh, uh new tactics. Uh, and it, w- it really was his personal choice. It was a moral choice. So, uh, he, he represents something. He represents uh, sort of the way that the power of the world's greatest military could be directed uh, towards a good end. Um, and, you know, uh, we as Americans, or Americans and Canadians, should be thinking about these questions of how, if you are so powerful, um, what is your responsibility in the world? It's an it's a age-old question. Um, so, so Heath represents that he embodies that question in the story. Then the, the other three characters are three 
uh, ship captains working under Heath. And they're actually, their rank is actually commander, but they are captains of their ship. One is George Sullivan, and he, he's the chap who's, whose memoir my hand landed on way back in California. And he represents sort of a, a, a sort of classic picture of an abolitionist motivated by a, a moral sense of what's right, uh, motivated by the idea that East Africans were people just like anyone else and uh, they, they should not be subjected to this. Um, very much a Harriet Beecher Stowe kind of feel. You know, um, maybe the word is sort of motivated by, by sentiment um, in part. Um, and, and, you know, represented by the sort of Wilberforce, uh, William Wilberforce kind of idea. Uh, then another commander, his name was Philip Collin. He was very much unlike George Sullivan. And he uh, felt he was um, just doing his duty. He wanted to do it well. He wanted to hunt down these slavers uh, successfully. Uh, but he uh, he was racist. He he had a, a sense of uh, British white supremacy, and uh, he often questioned whether or not East Africans were uh, human beings just like him, and uh, he questioned whether or not slavery uh, was a, an appropriate fate for for Africans. So, sort of a, a classic profile of a, uh, uh, you know, white supremacist British Victorian there. And then the, the, the third captain and the final character, uh, his name is Edward Mira. And uh, he, he didn't overthink it. He, he, was, uh, he hated slavers, uh, hated slavery, uh, black and white, right or wrong, and uh, highly motivated by uh, taking the fight to these slavers who he hated so much. Um, uh, you know, not a very Harriet Beecher Stowe sort of sentimental feel, um, uh, sort of like righteous anger uh, represented by that captain. So he's, he's particularly fun to write about, in fact. And I just, for our listeners, I have a good feeling that many of them are very familiar with the Atlantic slave trade and abolition in the Atlantic world, but that fewer um, might be familiar with that in the Indian Ocean. So they might be wondering, who are these Royal Navy captains engaged in anti-slavery measures in East Africa? Could you say a little bit about that dichotomy? Exactly. Yeah, right. Uh, people think about the Atlantic slave trade, um, which was shut down in the uh, first decade of the or made illegal, the, the shipment was made illegal in about the first decade of the 1800s. And then the British uh, worked out uh, treaties with all the countries involved in the slave trade and won the right to police it quite hard um, between uh, 1808 and about 1850. And that was a huge scale trade. Um, probably 12 million people uh, made captive and carried abroad from the West Coast um, over the centuries. Um, at its height, um, in the 1790s or so, uh, about 100,000 people trafficked uh, per year 
from the West Coast. So, so, so very vast. On the East Coast, um, it's a smaller scale. But, you know, scale is, is a weird thing to think about in this regard because each case of, a, you know, a child being enslaved is a, is a tragedy, you know, end of story. But it, but it's just, it sort of it defies enumeration in that way. But it, but it, it, it was, um, just in a nuts and bolts way, it was a smaller scale. About ten to 20,000 people trafficked from the East Coast every year in, say, the 1850s to early 1870s. Um, the, the, the East Africans from places today called, uh, Malawi, Tanzania, Kenya, uh, Mozambique, those parts, uh, they were bound for Madagascar. They were bound for, um, uh, the Arabian sea that is the Arabian peninsula coast and taken to the Persian Gulf. And the the little principalities there in the Persian Gulf, including Persia, um, and sometimes they were taken, especially in the early part of this period, eighteen fifty or so. Sometimes they were taken around the, the coast, around the Cape, all the way to Brazil, or uh, even to places like Cuba. So, um, and, and there they were cheating. The 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 slavers were cheating treaties that that. Uh, banned that that shipment. So that's what's going on on the East Coast. Yeah. And so these four Navy men are chasing, you know, this is the crux of your of your text are these chases between these these men and their ships and slave dows. Could you say a little bit about who was trading the slaves? Like who were these slavers exactly? Yes. Yes. So as you as you as you mentioned, they are these uh these little skimming coastal skimming slave dows, um, and they could ship as many as 300 people at a time, uh, but sometimes as, as few as just a handful. The, the slavers operating the ships were really just middlemen. Um, this was just a job to them, and um, the, the people making the money on the trade, well, they were many. Um, there were, were uh, slaver barons, in the African interior, who uh, built their wealth and power on um, trading and trafficked people and ivory at the same time. There were brokers and dealers on the African coast who would uh, you know, buy these trafficked people. And then there were um, people uh, in the Persian Gulf who wanted... Um, uh, individuals for sexual slavery or for pearl diving or for date processing uh, or as household servants or laborers. There were huge clove plantations on some of the coastal islands, and they sought out uh, enslaved laborers to um, harvest cloves and process cloves. And in one particular case of... Uh, terrible hypocrisy, there were French sugar growers who wanted um, really enslaved people to, uh, to, to uh, plant and harvest and process sugar. Well, slave labor was illegal in the French empire. So the 
French would go and uh, approach a slave dealer on the African coast. He would buy the slaves, and then he would um, put the the uh, East Africans on his ship, read a proclamation in French that they were free, but that he had a job for them, and then sail off uh, to a, a French sugar island plantation. We're, we're pretty certain that those uh, trafficked people had no idea what was going on. Um, they were from, say, the Mozambican interior and uh, couldn't speak French. And even if they had objected to um, uh, becoming, quote, migrant labor, end quote, there was really no opportunity for them to ever go home. Uh, how would they get there? Uh, once they got there, their village had probably been burned to the ground and ransacked by these slaver barons. Um, so really, it was no kind of kind of freedom at all. Yeah. And so, and then uh, sort of the next step from that, these recaptured slaves were being, I guess, recaptured is what I'm trying to say by um, these, the British Navy active in this region, right? So what, what, what would a day in the life look like for these Navy crews doing these activities? Yeah. So, so what was um, special about this case, as I said before, that Commodore really took it upon himself uh, to police this trade like never before. Uh, formerly, the Royal Navy uh, Commodore on the spot didn't dedicate this many ships. He wasn't so conscientious about where he placed them to sort of trap the slavers. And, and the book tells a story about how he went about doing it. But a day in the life on one of these ships was uh, very boring, uh, a lot of work, a lot of uh, waiting around to spring upon uh, a slaver. But nine out of 10 ships coming up the coast or operating in these waters was just an everyday merchant. Uh, but these, these captains had to check each and every ship uh, to see whether or not they were carrying uh, trafficked people. And uh, so and it was terribly hot. It was uh, a lot of work to keep these ships in good shape as the sort of tropical sun beat down upon them. Um, but then every once in a while, uh, coming up the coast or crossing the sea to Madagascar would be a slaver or a group of slavers. Uh, and then um, often the, the Royal Navy cruiser would fire a shot across the bows uh, try to get the slaver to uh, to 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 halt, uh, and sometimes they would, but sometimes they wouldn't. And um, the book describes some really horrible, nightmarish scenes of slavers. Uh, instead of being caught, uh, would turn their dows at the coast, often a very rocky coast. And they would actually crash their ships, um, you know, drowning sometimes hundreds of people at a time uh, before letting themselves be caught. Goodness. Yeah. The, the, the thing is, the slavers were middlemen, and they didn't own the ship, and they didn't um, own the slaves or own the ivory. And their thought was that they would crash 
the ship, uh, try to run away into the interior with at least some small portion of the trafficked people. They made such a vast profit on each enslaved person that even if they uh, preserved a small fraction of their, you know, it's a horrible word, of their cargo, um, they could still come out okay and they wouldn't have their, their, their own bosses implicated in the trade. They might be able to get away with their cash. They might be able to get away with, uh, you know, some pearls or what have you. Um, but they were, you know, quite willing to uh, murder, say, 200 people at a time by doing this. Yeah. And I noticed that, it, for example, Zanzibar seems to come up quite a bit in your book, like a lot of these scenes of uh, marketplaces and slave trafficking seem to take place in Zanzibar. Uh, why was that? Yeah, absolutely. Because Zanzibar was the main slave market on the entire East African coast. So when uh, usually when uh, the enslaved people came out of the African interior, they would be shipped to this little island of Zanzibar um, where they would be groomed for appearing in the slave market. Um, many of those enslaved people then worked on clove plantations on Zanzibar or a little island Pemba next to Zanzibar, or they would be transshipped to some other destination, whether, uh, whether a place where they could legally ship them according to their treaty with Britain on the East African coast, or slavers would uh, try to run up the coast to the Persian Gulf and Arabian Sea, which technically, according to Britain's treaty with the Sultan of Zanzibar, was legal. So, oh my goodness, I'm learning so much. So, so then what exactly happened to the enslaved peoples taken from these slaving vessels? Um, I think you mentioned at one point in 1868, about a thousand individuals were freed from slave ships. So where, where were they left? Yes. And this, this was, an, absolutely. So this was an unprecedented number. This represented um, Commodore Heath's big success in trying these new tactics for fighting uh, the slave trade. Well, unfortunately, Tyler, there was really never going to be a happy ending for these formerly enslaved people, even after the Royal Navy uh, lifted them out of these slave ships. Uh, because the way the slaver barons operated in the African interior, and these are some this horrible figures in history, very interesting, uh, sometimes uh, were ethnically a mixture of, of Portuguese, Indian, African. So they're very interesting and, and really terrible figures. Well, the way the slaver barons operated was they would stir up wars very often for the purpose of creating homeless people, essentially, whom they could scoop up. Um, or they would supply guns and alcohol and so on to some local um, power in the interior and say, we give this to you, we give you these guns and alcohol and so on in exchange for a dozen war captives or what have you. So this trade wasn't just horrible for, uh, for imprisoning people but for the way it wrecked whole societies. 
So in other words, these folks whom the Royal Navy lifted out of these slave ships could really never go home. Um, and, and that's part of the whole tragedy. So the British couldn't take them back to the coast. They certainly couldn't take them to Zanzibar. Um, they couldn't take them to Madagascar, which was uh, a slave society. Uh, so that gave them very few options. One was the hot, dusty town of Aden at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula. Not a lot of work, not a lot of farming, not a lot of great opportunities. Uh, another option was Bombay, but people worried that it was a, this huge metropolis, what was going to become of them in Bombay. So that left places like uh, Mauritius, uh, other Indian Ocean islands under the control of the British, where they could um, work on a farm, but often with an indenture contract. That's problematic. That's, you know, uh, contractual servitude could lead to all kinds of abuses. Um, you couldn't get out of the contract or you could be hunted down and dragged back in chains. It's, it's, not, it's not great. It's not a great situation. Um, and indeed, um, Philip Collum, that captain who sort of represents sort of the white supremacist point of view among my figures, he said, uh, this is no kind of life at all, and this is little better than slavery. Others on the station, like the Commodore and Captain Sullivan, said not at all. There is a hard and fast and total difference between even indentured servitude and slavery. There is freedom and unfreedom, and they're completely unalike. Uh, so, you know, uh, readers can judge that for themselves, but this is the sort of debate that the uh, officers themselves had. But not everybody entered into indentured servitude. You could make a go at um, trying to be a, a merchant, or trying to um, gather items, uh, working on a ship, what have you. Uh, and indeed, uh, at least one of the um, freed former captives uh, went to work on one of my ships, too. So I kind of mm -hmm. like to think about that and, and uh, like to imagine the uh, look on slavers' faces when this formerly enslaved guy boarded their ship. I guess um, just kind of a wrap-up question of sorts, where does humanitarianism fit into your book? You know, there's so much debate about whether anti-slavery advocates had an economic incentive for their actions or whether it was humanitarian. Um, where, does your, where do you think that fits? Yeah, um, well, certainly the, um, the men on my station, especially Commodore Heath and, and Sullivan and Mira, were sure that they were working for humanitarian reasons. Um, um, uh, I remember a, a letter from uh, Captain or Commander Edward Mira uh, uh, explaining his activity uh, was on the basis of humanity. That was his word, on the basis of humanity. Uh, so, so, so they were sure that what they were doing was humanitarian, that they, they weren't doing it for 
um, economic reasons or for um, you know the the greater power of the empire. And in fact, um, those who were making money in the Indian Ocean, um, British and Indian and others, um, were quite unhappy with this squadron for the way it slowed down shipping, for the way they were policing merchant ships and so on. Uh, even They were even mad at them for uh, freeing enslaved ship crews which sometimes were working on these merchant ships. Um, so those whose primary interest was money were, were uh, pretty unhappy with the squadron. Now, as you say, there is this wider debate about um, the relative humanitarianism um, at play in the Royal Navy's policing of the West African slave trade in the Atlantic. Um, and there are those who say that it was primary primarily uh, about justice and making up for the fact that the British were the, the main slavers on that coast. And then there are others who say that, uh, no, this was mainly because um, slavery was no longer quite so profitable in the Caribbean and so on. Uh, but, I, but, I, but in this case, we're pretty sure about the thinking of these men on the spot. And that's the story I'm really interested in. No, and I think you succeed greatly in doing so. Um, so I'd like to wrap up our conversation then by asking the traditional final question at New Books Network. What are you working on now? Oh, well, um, there's a draft of the manuscript of the next book with my publisher at Overlook Duckworth right now um, on a story from the Middle East in World War II in 1941. Um, and it's set in all the uh, cities from which we're uh, really unfortunately reading um, awful headlines today, like Fallujah, Mosul's been in the news recently, Aleppo, Damascus. Um, it's, it, like Squadron, it's about a select group of people. And I, you know, they're, they're set in this sort of remarkable context and I try to understand their their choices when they're faced with crisis um, also about the haziness between uh, right and wrong choices in this in the context of crisis or war and about imperialism and imperialism versus independence movements in the the Middle East and that question of where where justice lay um, and, and of course, like, like this one, I think it's just a damn good story too, um, that, that will, that's inviting to readers and will compel you to turn the page, but you're going to learn a lot about all these things I just mentioned. John, that sounds like a great project. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. So thank you again. Thank you, Tyler. It was a pleasure. <laughs> 